All right. Welcome to the Reframe Your Artistry interviews, where we gain inspiration from creatives who are thinking big picture while doing beautiful things right here, right now. Today, we are lucky to be sitting with, virtually, <laughs> and speaking with Dilip Dakuna. Dilip, I do believe, as you know, <laughs> I think of you as one of the great minds of our time, which I think <laughs> is much deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> An honor to engage in this way. And currently, speaking to the places you have been recognized, aside from myself, for your, your lovely mind, you're currently a Guggenheim Fellow, a professor of design, at least recently at Harvard and Penn in Columbia. You're the co-author of several books and featured in several gallery shows, I believe, with your creative and life partner. Anurada Matur. And um, with this lovely partner, your designs and visions have really taken on a, um, an artistic life of their own, inspired by at least a few of them, uh, a relationship that is necessary and at this point in history somewhat unique regarding water and wetness, but um, has can become a creative, beautiful, artistic expression to themselves. So thanks for your multifaceted offerings. His latest book, Philip's latest book, is what I think a gift to current and future geography lessons. The Guggenheim Foundation website summarizes his book, latest book, The Invention of Rivers, quote, as making the case that the river, far from being natural, is a product of design made possible by drawing the line, separating, land, from water, and this is a choice, I'm inserting here, prioritizing, a choice of a fair weather moment in the hydro hydrologic cycle or the water wetness cycle. His work is serene and majestic during an otherwise panic mode global pandemic regarding climate, healthcare, and humanitarian crises. Today in this interview, I intend to zoom in with him on the surfacing of the dilemma when we label and make constructions of things that become so embedded in our lifestyle, our way of experiencing the world, like the river, how we experience and engage with the river and think of the river now that we take these things to be essentially truths, we take them for granted. And that our rigid perception of things, Dillip suggests, may confine rather than aid our creativity and creative problem solving. So, Dillip, hello. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> nice to see you too. And. Um, and thank you for those lovely words. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to assemble when you know you you are offering such um, necessary and um, beautiful gifts to our world right now. Thank you. So I think of your work often, as you know, and I wanted to bring some of your ideas to the broader artistic and creative community I engage with from time to time. And one of the struggles I hear quite often with the artists that I work with that reminded me of your work is two things. Um, 
that we're taught a certain way of what art should look like, whether it be market driven or whatever the forces be. And that individuals can get really bogged down in, in their own barriers and blockages to thinking how their art should look versus the way their art maybe just naturally manifests. And the other thing that confines the artists I engage with often is this rigid boundary between how do they label themselves? Painter, dancer, writer, <laughs> poet. And as I try to foster or kind of have found anecdotally, uh, that can really limit expressivity and audience rather than thinking more broadly as artist, creator. That was what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Any label could be confining. <laughs> very true, very true. No, I mean, I, it's one, one of the things that, that we do, I would say, you know, to, we certainly, we certainly face this, we, we face disciplinary boundaries, you know, and we, and we uh, let's say we, we face a pressure uh, in order to be understood of presenting ourselves as representing something that people are familiar with. And, mm -hmm. and so the thing is this, that as artists, we distinguish, we distinguish between two arts. And, uh, and we found this helpful. On the one hand, there is art that is representational art mm -hmm. that represents something that people are familiar with, for example, or represents something of concern, of joint concern, you know, so concern for the environment, or concern for, you know, gender issues or concern for the, and, uh, and the art, uh, and the arts, the task of the artist then becomes one of representing an issue or representing a problem or, you know, representing a concern. You know, I feel that this is one, this is one kind of art, you know. There's another art form that is that is what we call art before science, um, that uh, that does not that that is not blocked by representational strategies, you know. It does not does not uh, block this forethought of how you're going to be read and how you're going to be seen, how you're going to be understood, or doesn't you know? It's it's not blocked by an audience, you know, that uh, that you have in mind or something like that. What you are in this mode is an explorer. You know, you're exploring um, a subject. You know that uh, might take you beyond uh, beyond uh, gender distinctions that people are familiar with. You know, and arrive at a new language, or take you beyond, in my case, beyond beyond the distinction between land and water. Because what is interesting about the land water distinction, you know, is it's not so much that land and you know land and water are already divided. You know, it is a divide that you make. So when I think land, water comes into being. When I think water, land comes into being, you know, and so that sense of of issues that that I mean that is an artistic creation. I've I've just created, uh, you know, by by, yeah. by separating separating two things that created the them on either side. So now when I think water, I think not land, but when I think land, I think not water. Now as an artist, I want to get beyond this, so I don't speak the language of land and water anymore. And so there is a there is a chance that you will not be understood, but then your burden then becomes one of of constructing the entirety of the paradigm in which your art, you know, hmm. communicates, communicates. And so, I mean, it's not an, it's not an easy task. I mean, you know, it's something, it's something that we find uh, extremely hard to do, mm -hmm. but there's joy in it, you know, I mean, and yeah. you, you know, you, you, you're doing something that you love yeah. and, uh, and, and after, after some time you, you know, it gets communicated, you know, it may not be yeah. immediately, it may not be for the purposes you want, but, but it does, you know. Yeah, so that anyone who shows back up and is showing up regardless of if they represent or creating representations that others might 
attached to or access over time someone's style is going to come through just by the essence of showing back up i guess yeah exactly. um, yeah that's a lovely reframe and i think we've had a conversation one other time where i mentioned the u-curve of creativity that jessica hoffman davis project zero and howard gardner had come up with in the past that reminds mm -hmm. me a bit of this that we start off artistically and creatively along kind of piaget's developmental curve where we're non-representational and then we get into mm -hmm. the literal stage and some people just stay there you know the literal landscaping mm -hmm. and then some kind of continue back up this u-shaped curve where we get back to this lofty form of lofty form yeah non that's a nice that's a nice way to put it i mean there is a i mean there's a gestation period actually i guess in this you know in this <laughs> yeah yeah but what yeah. i like to offer to clients and i wish i could offer more to the universe is i hear so many clients say well, I used to make really good art that looked like, or I meet, but there's this whole life to continue living. And yeah. um, that essentially everything is somewhere along a continuum of representation or non-representation. The other yeah. thing I find inspiring about what you said was we think so much about the chasm between art and science and the map itself, the conceptualization of land versus water, water bodies is essentially an artistic representation right absolutely absolutely <laughs> so in fact the foundation of science may be art after all <laughs> in fact it, it, absolutely i mean and, and and that's an you know i mean i'm glad you just put it like that in a very straightforward way because i mean we do see maps for example that uh, you know as um, as artistic uh, you know as an artistic uh, you know sort of piece uh, pieces and uh, and you and you realize that uh, that this is the foundation of so many sciences, you know, when you talk about ecology, you talk about, you know, right. you talk about geography, you talk about, I mean, you know, and, and policy is, is grounded on it, you know, right. and yes, yeah, so absolutely. And that's exactly what we say, art comes before science. And in order to uncover it, the critique of science and uh, the thing has to, has to take on, you know, obviously a more um, fundamental, or let's say an artistic, it becomes an artistic enterprise in itself, you know? Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Fascinating. Oh, oh thank you. Um, so, so then what might you suggest for someone not so familiar, certainly with the concepts of landscape from the design world or these like theories of um, how we developmentally progress as artists, how might you suggest individuals expanding their boundaries regarding their own art making? I think often, for instance, of that beautiful exercise you had us do at, at a gathering, um, arts and, and climate a few years ago where I was fortunate to meet you, you had us doing an exercise of drawing the room with um, you know, line oriented tools. And then we experienced and captured the room through wet materials and how that blurs our experience of things, um, expands it. Um, what yeah. do you suggest to the average artist to expand their horizons? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there is, a, I mean, of course, <laughs> I would say that there's, there's some amount of difficulty that some people have you know going beyond representational art you know i mean and and that is not something i can address really but one of the things that we have found necessary you know i mean and my education is an as an architect as an architect but we were taught architecture very much as an art form you know as an art form so you practice it as an art form um but once you start embedding this art form in society you know in issues of of uh, you know i would say crisis sometimes like what is happening today you know, you put architecture back in the world, 
you know, it ceases to be an art form. It begins to, it, you know, you begin to see the kind of polarities it is constructing, or you see the kinds of uh, divisions that it is making. It is grounded. You begin to see it's grounded in separation in itself, you know, and so it, it produces separation. Um, but then we talk so comfortably about the city, we produce cities, you know, but then you think of cities as, an, as, as, as more than an art form, you know, people live in it. Mm -hmm. So somewhere, I guess, I'm, I'm calling for that activism then, you know, of uh, that to some extent comes naturally to some artists, but not to everybody. But to use that actually as uh, an awakening, you know, as an awakening and uh, a way to situate your art. You know, and then when you start situating your art, as we have done, you know, for example, and situating architecture, you know, on the ground, if you will, beginning to see that uh, that uh, land and water, you know, was the first architecture, if you will, you know. So when we when we study the Mississippi, we really we traveled the Mississippi and we just did drawings. We did drawings. We did photography. We did the thing. I mean, we could have just produced and we we produced prints and we could see them as 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 just art. But when we when we went in deeper. You know, we saw for to just give you an example, uh, you know, this is a this is a landscape of flood, you know, and uh, we realized after a while that, uh, that this landscape has been constructed. It has been constructed in the sense that European settlers came and uh, and drew the line between land and water. And then when water crosses the line, you yell flood, flood. I mean, you drew that line, you know, so how can flood be natural? And then we saw how Native Americans lived, mm -hmm. you know, on mounds and uh, and they lived you know, people would say, oh, they had a different different uh, attitude to flood. We say, no, they did not see flood because they, they, you know, they saw water rising and falling. They did not see water as flowing and flooding, you know. So the moment you, the moment you, you know, look at it like that, there's another potential ground over there. The art that we were producing in order to represent the Mississippi landscape ceased to be representational art. You know, it became a mode of engaging place engaging place in a different and 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 uncovering a different language uh, so it came with a certain amount of resistance of giving in but mm. also a sense a sense that we were being told something you know by what we were seeing and and that it was not something that we could just place outside of ourselves yeah. we began to, we began to live it so art became a living a living form so i would say that i can only give you that as an it's kind of an example of how we you know how we got out of of this uh, opened our horizons, I would say, yeah. and then became, you know, I would say, open room for invention of seeing things that that uh, you know yeah. other people take for granted. Yeah, and that it is it has a very mindful element. As one of my previous interviewees mentioned, Scott Ruscher, we were talking about art being of time and place and and specific dimensions, and then it exists. And then it takes on kind of a life of itself. I mean, I'm sure you can relate and many writers can relate like, okay, we have our first draft, our first offering. And then like, it goes somewhere to someone else who maybe wants to make money on it. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. wow, I don't <laughs> even recognize that thing anymore. <laughs> yes. It goes out of your hands, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that um, in some ways, and I believe one kind of postulate I have with, with the work is that it's important to remain playful and purposeful in artistic mm. life because if we lose that playfulness there is that element of loss of time and place and um just kind of as you're mentioning that interconnectivity along the mississippi so that, that's right i mean I, I, the playfulness that you're talking about i mean the way in which i might see it is that 
I'm playful with the categories. I don't take them all for granted. I, I don't take anything for granted in that sense. I know, you know I love that about you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Reminding us all, don't take anything for granted. Challenge. So I'll tell you what's yeah. So believe me, I mean it's so I mean, even when I talk to I talk to people today, you know, who take people who take flood for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, I it's it's interesting that I find, you know, that even when I say that the line, you know, that flood is water crossing a line that I have drawn. So how can it be natural? I find it. I find that they they find it so hard to get out of something that they've assumed is natural all along. You know, so so they can't change their vocabulary. Say out right. of the floodplain. So I have to revisualize it for them. Right. I have to revisualize right. an entire context right. uh, in order for it to make sense to somebody. And so the yeah. artist's playfulness sort of extends then you know beyond the you know and right. I guess in a, right. a context that draws you in. Uh, one one great example it makes me think of as well, Dilip, is Basquiat. And um, so he grew up in Brooklyn, had his breakthrough as this undercover overnight graffiti artist who then evolved into one of, if not the most marketable artists of recent history. And so his art being initially of graffiti artistry, like the flood, seen as something kind of crossing territorial boundaries, some yeah. might see it as a nuisance. <laughs> Some might see it as a violation, right? Um, and then later on, given that the art world evolved, we yeah. haven't yet evolved. Yeah. Starting our relationship to landscape. Um, now we celebrate Basquiat. Sadly, you know, he's no longer with us to, to experience it so much, but um, no longer with us in, in body. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a fascinating example. You know, I mean, I would think the same, uh, the same with the with the blues. You know, that we experienced in the Mississippi, and we made that connection between between blues music mm -hmm. and uh, the meanders of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, you know, and we and we contrasted that. We contrasted the meanders with the engineered, the engineered what we call the engineered curves of uh, of the Army Corps. Uh, you know, and um, and how music. You know, the 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 different the what it took to produce blues music that does not stick to lines. You know, there's always improvisation. There is, there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's a, uh, a rapport between, between, you know, the audience and the musician, things that are, are not heard of in classical music and, uh, and the playing of classical music. So as an art form, blues, the blues came out of the hollers of slaves, you know, and so we made that parallel between, you know, we made a parallel between this, between music and, uh, and the Mississippi River that was fighting the engineers, you know, uh, control structures. And um, and so yeah, so we draw very much. We draw very much on uh, on art forms that we see in the same manner that you are seeing, right? You know, uh, graffiti uh, yeah. coming into its own into its own uh, yeah. art form, and it takes guts to to do that. I mean, for a blues musician to actually have done that to escape the confinement of music, mm -hmm. you know, to to produce something new, I think takes a lot of uh, takes takes guts, but also a playfulness with categories that are you know given. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so hopefully someday and someday sooner rather than later, our relationship to flood, like different relationships to well, water, <laughs> abolishing the word flood, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, just yeah. as maybe yeah. some like to abolish the word graffiti or black music as black music, right? I mean, it's just Correct, like, you know, or the swamp or the, you know, I mean, I can think of so many, you know, words that have turned into demeaning Exactly. uh demeaning terms that yeah. that need to be turned around yeah <laughs> yeah but that's the task of an artist yeah. <laughs> the task of the artist designer philosopher which kind of leads to one of my next questions a bit more of a personal question Dilip. and um 
as I was writing and thinking about this, I said, I think I know the answer to it. And then I made a joke to myself saying, which is all the more reason why I don't know the answer to it since I know the answer. Um, I think I know the answer. How do you define yourself as an academic? And do you consider yourself professor of architecture? And do you feel <clears throat> kind of forced for the purposes of publication for tenure, uh, grant money to define yourself academically within certain domains? That's an excellent question, and I've, I've sort of struggled with it, particularly in this country, you know, where where you're slotted, you're very much slotted, and you need to you need to conform, yeah. you know, for for many, for I would say for many reasons. Um, although, you know, I have never chosen the tenure route precisely because of that. I've never been able to fit into any category. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, and to some extent, I resent it also. Um, yeah. You know, and so even though I, you know, sort of been. Uh, been situated by by other people, you know, as a as a theorist by some, you know. I think I mean it's like you know when I when I finished my PhD um, in uh, at Berkeley, you know, my wife gave me printed a card for me, you know, said that you know Dilip Dikuna PhD model maker, you know, because I love <laughs> making I love making models, you know. So and I always thought that, that reminds I, me of my paper making course at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I always thought that I'd, you know, I'd make models for a living or something like that, and and uh, and leave my mind free to to think about and do do things that uh, that I've always wanted to do. Yeah. So so I've never quite uh, fitted in the academic in an academic kind of world, you know, but not fitted the distinction between academia and and practice either, you know. So so we are constantly debating, uh, you know. Like when, when there are people who ask us, do you practice architecture? I mean, it's true. I mean, we have built, we have done buildings, and you know, we have done. Uh, but I would say that the kind of practice that we do now is is also. I mean, I should say the exhibitions that we do, uh, changing the imagination, I think has much of as as much of an important role as uh, as uh, changing landscapes, you say, or changing you know changing built form and, and things like that. So the interior so, landscape. You know, so we are very much into this into this. Um, I should say, the practice of defining practice. <laughs> You know, if you will. So, yeah. So, so it's something that I've tried to steer away from. You know, the need to define oneself. You know, and uh, yeah. To, yeah. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit more to, so long as you're comfortable, um, the resentment of feeling like you know here you are at these lofty institutions, honored for your thinking, and yet maybe because of quote your fluidity that word i bring up a lot um that you haven't been honored or there isn't like a foundational equivalent to tenure with certain institutional supports in institutional yeah. home bases because perhaps specifically because of how uniquely you approach things you know i you know, sometimes you know. <laughs> I don't know whether I should put it like this, but uh, I mean, I don't want to sound any. Don't want to sound arrogant. And sometimes the world comes around to your position, you know. And yeah. um, and and that's the way we have seen our, our work in some ways. I mean, that you know, when we started working on the Mississippi on on water issues, uh, we didn't want to be seen as water people. You know, we we moved into looking at other places and things of that sort and uh, expanded our uh, sort of world so that we didn't so people would not would not slaughters in you know as as this or that um but we had real difficulty communicating what we meant when we said that the mississippi you know the mississippi floods because we you define a river landscape you define a river and you have defined flood you know so when we when we started saying that and we, we then also said that you know the army corps of engineers 
they're landscape architects. Why are they not considered? Why are they not considered in the field of landscape architecture to be landscape architects? You look at them as outside the field, as engineers. You know, so they they are landscape architects. So you know, why don't we expand the field of landscape architecture to include them? Then we looked at maps and the and the map maker and the surveyor, and we actually showed how surveyors articulate the landscape that then landscapes take for granted. So I said, why can't you see surveyors as landscape architects? You know. And it, so it went on. I mean, and now, if you think about the way in which some of these disciplines are practiced, they're all fighting to get out of their disciplinary boundaries. You know, I mean, and so now you talk about collaboration, you talk about uh, interdisciplinarity, you talk about, and our, our, our crisis in the world today are all, you know, are all being seen as as not being solved within any discipline. So disciplines are beginning to feel inadequate to the boundaries that they have drawn around themselves. Interesting, right? Yes. Yeah, so maybe this is, like you said, the world may come around. Perhaps we went into this trend of hyper-specializing and maybe we're going to come out of it a bit. I still feel a craving. I personally, as um, an artist, uh, a practitioner psychologically, I feel pretty isolated and lonely at times still. I think at this point in our history, as much as I want to mm. think collaboratively, and um, for instance, even that term interdisciplinary gives me yeah. psychological hives because it yeah. assumes separatism, yeah. right? You're right. And in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, you know, because it's not a, it's not a, a term that, uh, that we are comfortable with, uh, I should say, working with, you know, and because precisely because of that, it needs to, you know, you need to define yourself before. And there were competitions and there still are competitions that, uh, like architectural competitions that encourage you to work with ecologists, to work with, uh, you yeah. know, a sociologist to work with this and work that and I say that you know as a designer and an artist I want to be seen as all of them you know I'm and so we for a while embrace the term transdisciplinarity transdiscipline I was gonna uh, ask you if there's any sort of like transdisciplinary and, and yeah. is that within the silo another swear word to me yes <laughs> exactly and, and, but, um, and, is that something seen within the silo of, of design that's brought up now trans Let's say it has, it's a term that has a lot of difficulty, you know, I mean, because the only way you can argue it is to transcend a discipline. And that means that you have to make the argument from within a discipline, you know, and so it becomes, it becomes problematic in other ways. Uh, and so more recently, we have embraced this concept of pre-disciplinarity, uh, 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 you know, and if I had to, you know, I mean, the enlightenment is not always the best example, uh, you know, for, for a number of, number of reasons. But there's one thing that, that, uh, that came out in a time like that. And that is the amateur, you know, the amateur. Was the, was, mind. Yeah. Yeah. So the amateur was a person who, who then, you know, met in, met in societies or they met in, you know, in cafes. They, I think they, they did not have any disciplinary boundaries. I mean, they, you know, they were minds that, uh, I mean, we can only think of, of minds like, you know, the Leonardo da Vinci types uh, in Thomas Jefferson's and in the, you know, the Joseph Banks and in all these kind of characters that, uh, you know, of the enlightenment. But, but without getting into disciplines, what really made them tick at some point is this is the freedom of not being seen within a discipline mm -hmm. and so the amateur that as distinct from a professional is really i think the role the, the place of the artist and uh, and so the amateur as i i look at it is very much a predisciplinary a predisciplinary position you know that, I love that, that. You don't, we'll have to pitch that know. as some sort of collaborative yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it <laughs> have, you so revived, thing, have you revived a community of amateurs <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I know. I mean, I would. Say, I mean, I would just say that that is the way in which we want to see the world, mm -hmm. and and uh, the only way that we would like to collaborate in any in any fashion would be to see the amateur in everybody else. You know, so even the ecologist, we try to we try to turn them into into amateurs. You know, we or the, and so you call out a certain 
a certain mindset, I think, in, in people and other, in, you know, that asking them not to transcend their discipline, but to convert themselves into amateurs and yeah. begin to see, yeah. I guess, to see the art in their discipline. I mean, yeah. I would put it like that, to see yeah. the art in their discipline. And I, I think that that's so, it speaks to my heart because certainly when I, I thought of and, you know, it was a very conscious, much anticipated energy to become a parent of such a wonderful experience of, of having a child. I think, I think of how transformative that energy is of wanting to engage and see the world through the eyes of the toddler experience too, just like the U-curve I was talking about earlier, that yeah. it also really reinforces fundamental ways of thinking for me of honoring mm. the humanity and the integrity of, of all things and all mm. beings. And yeah. that, that really, the amateur, I think really speaks to that beautifully. And um, my daughter's engagement with me reminds me of that too. And, and work <laughs> That's a beautiful example, yeah. I mean, what have you, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a lovely example. I think that that is, I mean, you know, if I'm looking at it as an, an analogy, as, you know, just a, a child, Mm -hmm. The way we put them through school and the way we put them through, I mean, we, we put them through divisions for the rest of their life, you know, and through specialization. I mean, and we have to rethink this, you know, I mean, somewhere, yeah. you know, I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be an unlearning uh, process that, that parallels. Yeah, the be like, I'm going to point to the line on the map. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. I guess we have to <laughs> You know, it's like my daughter, when she was, when she was um, in, I know, in, primary school, I think somewhere, she must have been six or seven or something. The teacher asked them to draw the river, draw a river. And, uh, and she asked the teacher at that point in time, and this is what the teacher told us. She said, at what time do you want me to draw it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, she, was, she had some thoughts already at that right. time. Was, that, was being... that amateur or was that influenced by the parents' <laughs> education? <laughs> what time was that? It's a parallel unlearning that goes right, on with the learning, right, I right. guess. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful example. So could you share, um, maybe I'm a little out of order here, but I, I feel like you've referenced saying we several times throughout the interview, and I, I admire the kind of partnership you, had share, you have shared in both kind of life partnership and creative and, and generative academic partnership with, with your wife. Mm -hmm. um, what is that like? What are some of the unique opportunities, the unique challenges? And um... yeah, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question that we've often struggled with because many, many have sort of asked, asked us this, uh, uh, you know, just from the point of view of, you know, tenure and, you know, other things also it comes up, you know, the, the nature of the partnership. You know, when we got married, we never ever thought that we would be partners in, um, in work, you know, I mean, we were each doing our own thing and, um, you know, but there's something that, that just evolved. I don't know how to sort of explain it. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it just requires a certain amount. I mean, I don't like to use the word sacrifice as such, but, but there is a, there's a, there's a coming together and a, a compromise that one makes in certain issues, you know, like in our case, we were both could have, you know, both could have ended up teaching, you know, full time, but we chose not to, you know, we, you know, so I took the route of, uh, even though I'm the one with a PhD, you know, it should be teaching in a way. I mean, I took the route of being more independent because it was my, in the nature of my mind, perhaps. Um, but the thing about, about living together for a while and, you know, and, and talking issues and talking concerns, I think we drew the art out of each other, I would think, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and that served as a kind of common ground, um, you know, and so, you know, what I said in the beginning, you know, this exploration, the exploration that it sort of set up was a course that both of us could be on 
and and so I would think that the collaboration uh, between us um, was drawn out, as it were, rather than us making an effort, you know, to to draw it out. Mm -hmm. And one cannot point to any one particular thing. I would say that 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 did it, but but I think that sense of collaboration wherein we we each respect everything that the other does and not and not say that okay you are this kind of thing and i do this and you know and therefore we come together so it is not that separation that brings together thing but it is something that sort of grows as it were you know and uh, uh -huh. do you have moments both in your private lives and i imagine you do in the professional creative where you have to discreetly say who is doing what to allow yourselves to honor that and then how do you kind of negotiate or transcend that at times yeah, I mean, you know, often, I mean, the, and this again is the social pressures that come in that uh, force you to divide and say, oh, are you the one who does this and are you the one who does that? I suspect this. And, you know, I mean, it's amazing how people suspect a lot, you know, and um, yes, and, and how, I knew that as a 21st century woman in America. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting, actually, because, you know, there's a certain uh, there's a certain assumption that people make, you know, even even academic ones that, oh, you know, if you're doing theory, you cannot do you cannot do practice or you cannot do art, or you're doing, you know. Or you do this and you do that and and that makes it it really makes it hard you know i mean and our life has been sort of steering around these these things which we find to some extent totally unnecessary to um you know to working because what we want people to do is to focus on on the issues that we are we are pointing to you know and um, and so it's a it is a challenge but but i would think that you know it's not a collaboration in the in this in, and we keep reminding ourselves of this i mean as you likely point out i mean that you know people do and we often talk about it once in a while and we say that you know there's this and that and and um, and we say you know it doesn't have to be this and that you know it can be you know it can be singular you know and so we are constantly bringing back what uh, what what everything is telling us to divide yeah yeah know? and um, and yeah i mean it's it's a yeah, it's it's something that we are constantly discussing, and uh, but maybe that's what keeps it going as well. You know, it's just this this challenge, these challenges. Mm -hmm. of, um, so essentially, at any given moment, you're trying, you're practicing to take equal parts responsibility and credit. Um, if we have to kind of bring in language around it, and yet you're also practicing of the moment how you're going to delegate, and you trust one another to kind of step in as needed, and it's worked that way for you yeah in some in some way i mean i wouldn't say it's always as smooth as that you know like for example even in this <laughs> even this book i Gosh, this, my uh, fantasy is just broken down <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh, yeah you know it, it's like this book uh, the invention of rivers you know it was part of a larger project that uh, that um, you know was intended to be an exhibition an art exhibition in addition to in addition to a book uh, but then the project was taking so long and then of course we had all sorts of other difficulties and other projects that came in and were disrupting and then finally anu said why don't you just publish this because this is very much your you know your thinking and uh, critical thinking so we separated the two things to some extent between criti criticality and the imaginative mm -hmm. thing so now it's become two books and um, and and you know and and so it was she just didn't feel comfortable with the book as is defending it you know in the terms in which it was written which demanded you know a certain a certain avenue of uh, it, it sort of upset me a little bit you know that uh, I, I didn't want it to that be makes related, me feel but... better yeah i often feel that <laughs> separatism element when my spouse is like no i don't really want to put my name on <laughs> it's a form of honor and respect but the, yeah okay tell me more about that yeah so you know so in the end i mean i so i in the end i probably published the book i mean it's part of the part of the i mean i would say the first critical it sets up the ground now for ocean of rain which we're working on together now 
Great. You know, and it's turning out into a book again and, uh, you know, and an exhibition. And uh, I don't think it will be separated anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, this will, this will be our work. I mean, it's already been exhibited in parts. Uh, yeah. But, um, but it is, yeah, so that was a, it was a sort of strange moment, you know, in which, in which we, um, uh, we sort of parted, you know, ways briefly. But I think it is, it's more out of Anu's discomfort of, of, uh, of having to be in a position as author of something she felt, and I'm, I'm sure she would have been more comfortable with if the two books had been produced together. You know? <laughs> There's a, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things of, of how do you contextualize a question sure. that comes out of a product, you know? Sure, so and, then uh, it went along a tangent of um, her, did she feel like her point of view or her voice um, better gave merit to this second angle, whereas you felt like you had to kind of preface it, give some more historical anchoring or? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I would say that to her, uh, her comfort, her comfort level would probably be, would be more attuned to the, to the second, you know, with, with the second work framing, which would have happened, I think, which would have happened with, you know, in, yeah. in the first instance if we had given time. But I think she got a little impatient with it, you know, and, um, or maybe there was impatience in the air. You know, we spoke to some friends and they said, listen, why don't you just publish this? You know, and we, you know, <laughs> and move, on. The way. move on. Yeah, and move on. You know, and so it was it was a, it was just this funny dynamic uh, that that occurred, you know, in the in that well, uh, thing. Yeah. I look yeah. forward to the next book because speaking of kind of transcending things, like I feel like it's this gorgeous like coffee table conversation piece. Like if I put it in my living room, people are like, the invention of rivers. I'm like, yes, open it up. <laughs> So I'm sure, you know, is it going to have a similar shape? It should. I, we don't quite know yet. I mean, there's, a, there's going to be a lot more of our own drawings in it. Like okay. you notice in this one, there's not many, there's no, yeah. there's no real drawings as such. It's so grounded in, um, in history and, you know, and a certain, certain critique. Uh, whereas uh, this, which would, we would like it to be the framing of this book, because I wouldn't have written this book without Ocean of Rain as, as the, as a kind of ground of critique and this next work is called ocean of rain and uh, it's going to be you know an exhibition like i said so we don't quite know the text will be a little less i mean uh, i think the drawings will be a lot more so we don't know the kind of format that it's going to that it's going to take but i suspect the way we've been thinking about it is very much along the same lines as a second volume Beautiful. Um, Beautiful. you know so um, yeah so i acknowledge that in this book talking about the ocean of rain being the framework that allows us to see the invention of rivers. Yeah, yeah, um, I appreciate that. Um, particularly yeah. speaking to my point of view, growing up female and alum of women's colleges, you know, I appreciate when uh, male masculine voices really honor that um, interconnectivity mm. of what has been done with particularly their female partners. And I did appreciate that in your references throughout the book. And yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and of course, I, I see Anu as a co-author. Even if she does not. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Breaking news here. I got that captured. I had a feeling. Um, well, thank Anu yeah. for that. I have like one more curious question, and then getting a, an, a if you're willing to share an angle on what you're currently working on, as well. Something that has struck me for some time in your way of thinking, and um, kind of that speaks to. I certainly grew up a working middle class family. I grew up in a pretty hom homogeneous community where I was an interfaith kid, like where do I fit in? And I think I grew up kind of feeling like 
nomadic in my state of mind. So I think I naturally gravitate toward individuals, writers, philosophers, thinkers who are comfortable in the nomadic experience. And that's also something that rang true to me when we had that collaborative conference a few years ago. Could you speak a little bit to what you think the, the, your, what your lived experience and point of view has been like that's influenced you to, I think, be quite comfortable in the representational and the non-representational nomadic ways of being and how that might influence your work and your art. Yeah, you know, I, you know, in, when one is, one is faced with such a diversity in the world and so many possibilities, mm -hmm. one is, one is challenged to find one's own center, you know, and, and keep one's own center. And I feel that that is the challenge of the nomad, you know, and the nomad is, is one of the most centered, centered people, I would think. And I aspire to it. I can't say that I, you know, that, uh, you know, the act of displacement, the act of displacement is, uh, requires another form of placement, I would say, you know, I mean, in that, that sense of, uh, that sense of the nomad of the nomad is is a very encouraging one. So especially so it's, it's, you know so when I'm looking at looking at the kinds of fields that confronted me, you know whether I'm, you know as a student or you know or as a teacher or as a as somebody working with uh, you know with I would say on projects like that we have done where you're faced with with many, you know I think the the challenge is to find yourself every time. You know I mean where do you where do you situate yourself and how do you situate yourself and you know, and then maintaining that through, you know, through time, you know, is a, is a challenge also, you know, and so, so we have constantly, I mean, to find that thread, you know, that, uh, that takes you from one project to the next project to the next project, you know, after some time, these projects lose, lose boundaries and uh, things. So, but at the same time, they do have their ends and then beginnings and, you know, ends and beginnings. So, so, so if you talk about the, and I assume you're talking about nomadism in a broad sense, uh, but my life is also very nomadic, you know, it has no, been, I, in terms the, of, uh, I guess I quote from the language earlier, the representational versus the non, but like, yeah, literally, you're very comfortable <laughs> being nomadic. I think it's awesome. Like you're taking the train up to teach in Boston on a whatever right. day and you're in New York on a Thursday and you're back yeah. in Italy on a Wednesday. Yeah. But that's, um, so so, how, how does that influence, uh, how did you become comfortable? maybe even from your, your very roots, which may be different from this more homogeneous, stay put Americana angle that yeah. not much of my audience is used to. How um, did it get started and how does it influence your mindset? As I said, certainly it, it's influenced yeah. by my imagination. Like I'd rather be in 13 other imaginary worlds sometimes and, and I'm yeah. comfortable there. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel, I, I mean, I'm, Yes, I'm in different places, but I'm in the same place, you know, in, in a strange, in a strange way. You know, I mean, and I sort of carry my work with me and carry my, the same, I mean, you know, and so even when I, even when I go to, you know, lecture in, in places, places that I would have otherwise loved to see, you know, and travel in and, you know, I mean, if I'm, if I'm alone, for example, I'd much rather just continue with my work. I mean, I may not have, you know, moved and, and been there, you know, for, you know, in, in, in any, um, uh, lost my yeah, but but I guess you know there is a I would draw a parallel between between my own placement and and displacement and representation and non-representation. You know I think there is a strong parallel over there. I think that while we are disciplined to be in a place and we are disciplined into representational modes, you know this notion of of experimenting and finding the new and uh, you know discovering new subjects, explorations and stuff like that requires that kind of displacement. You know, and so we are all the time challenging ourselves. So even in my even in my teaching to students in landscape, 
we often struggle between convention and having them discover the unconventional mm -hmm. that that they were drawn to. Um, so pedagogy has its you know has its challenges along the same lines, mm -hmm. along the same lines. So so we would we would be all the time very careful to to sort of ground students in the conventional modes of drawing, for example, or of, of painting or of uh, you know sketching and things like that. But then we would we would push them you know in the in the semester to sort of challenge it to go out of their comfort zone and to and to try new things but we had to anchor them in an exploration mm -hmm. so that is what i would do so i mean even when i travel or you know move to move to other places i sort of seek a certain amount of uh, of uh, creativity i would say in displacement so the non representation is the same thing that we experiment with uh, you know like say printmaking uh, or uh, or with staining in our in our most recent work we've been working with staining yeah. Uh, but then it gives us it gives us a way to reflect back on on some of the representational modes that we that we do. So you know the one if I can give you one example, mm -hmm. the way we see ourselves uh, you know uh, doing uh, screen printing. Say we talk about layering information. Now this information can be very conventional information, but we layer information uh, you know until until we I, I should put it like this. I mean we we, we layer it in order to discover something new hmm. you know so we're working with some conventional forms but then we allow it to speak differently back again you know to us and uh, yeah. yeah and so regularly the, the comings and goings the foundation the exploration and it's all the wandering it's all kind of nomadic it's ex exactly i mean and that that sense of 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 uh, i forget the words that we used once you know there was um you know that we that we both play and we we reason and we play, you know, I mean, that that sense right. of uh, like a synergy. Of back and forth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, and maybe we do it now in a almost everyday, everyday sense. Uh, but um, when you when you have to teach it, you're forced to sort of break it down in some ways and to find to find to yeah. find, uh, you know, methods by which students go beyond convention yeah. and become inventors, you know, so. Uh, so we, it all yeah. kind of cycles back. That is one of the gifts of yeah. down and teaching. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. Roots and wings. Yeah. Uh, well, you have established some really extraordinary and original roots already in your lifetime. Um, so where do you see, where's your current creative voice, authentic voice? Uh, where are you going artistically? Where do you see the future of artistry going? <laughs> Just some, a couple small questions to finish up with, Philip. <laughs> Very tiny, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. You know, I mean, perhaps I'll need a, a few lives to answer that question. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, in our own work, and again, we're sort of very much embedded in our, in, I guess, our, our work. What we're doing right now is working on Ocean of Rain. Mm -hmm. But there is a philosophical question you know behind it i mean in that sense that we are moving from questioning the line that um, you know that that we've questioned in rivers um, particularly but the line between land and water to questioning the surface uh, and uh, and the surface as a divider between waters above and waters below you know that uh, between uh, that that sets up the assumption that everybody inhabits the Earth's surface, because today that surface is in danger, you know, with uh, sea level rise, with, uh, you know, the sea is not just coming across a line, it is rising, you know, I mean, and so there, there is something that water is telling us that, uh, you know, that is more than just, you know, don't draw the line and don't separate me, you know, it is saying something more, there's something in the language of water that we need to hear 
And uh, so we find that we are questioning the surface that is primarily a land surface that has then moved everything towards being land centric, um, you know, and um, and land has really encouraged its separation with water. So you need dry land and wet, you know, and wet water. So you put you put wetness in its place, as it were, you know, in order that you be dry and, okay. you know, and uh, and so what we are what we are saying is that all people did not live like this. And in fact, there are people yeah. today, you know, most of the poor in the world, the informal, what we call tend to call informal because we cannot understand them. We call them informal, uh, you know, because they're messy or, you know, they don't have the, our formalities. But we find that what these people are doing is that they're never separating. They're always negotiating. Hmm. So we are using this, this, uh, you know, critiquing, I would say, separation uh, or the separation of a surface and the assumption that, that people live on an earth surface, you know, with this positioning, of, uh, of uh, I would say, humans in in a in a zone between between clouds and aquifers yeah. that you live in a negotiated realm between clouds and aquifers rather than on a surface. So that requires a complete dismembering of so much of uh, what we take for granted, you know, in in the assumptions of land and uh, you know and the property and and what yeah. have you that yeah. that stem from that civilization as well and making room for these other folks. You know, and um, mm -hmm. and people like the the Native Americans, people like the people, you know, of Africa, people yeah. in, in the monsoons, uh, the Aborigines in in Australia. All these are people who worked with negotiating wetness, right. ubiquitous wetness, as opposed to a land surface. So this wetness between clouds and aquifers, that is everywhere in dew and things like that. We've never had a we've never had a ground to appreciate it on its own terms, to appreciate yeah. them on their own yeah. the other presences. Instead, we all the time talk about water. Yeah, so, as if still in the 21st century, there's still this whiting out European model of we think that the world's not really flat, but we're saying that yeah. the world is still kind of flat too, and, and limiting yeah. our yeah our modulation. And so, are you kind of pitching that in years to come, if we were to think creatively and then apply that? as the foundation to other scientific and policy explorations in the same way we envision living on Mars someday, we can mm. more kind of less horizontally, less flat, um, exploring Absolutely. how, where we are living. Absolutely. I mean, I would think that you begin to appreciate, you, you appreciate a thickness, you know, I mean, it's not about, it's not about the, the, the flat versus the, versus the globe. It's about the, it's about the flat that is a plan view of the world, you know, from above that we have, tended to make our ground of decisions and this yeah. thickness yeah this, this thickness there you are there you yeah. are you know and the mess to... even animal kind and and all kind of energy that like we are owning <laughs> the surface yes exactly <laughs> yeah. you know i mean that uh so so yeah so i think that that's our our sort of next move and you can imagine the artistic uh, the, the the challenge for art that comes with it i mean how do you change uh, a view you know that is so ingrained in everything we do um right right you know, from to another one you know that um uh, yeah so we're experimenting with all kinds of things like i said you know we're experimenting with staining uh, you know um ways by which we are interacting with paper or with with material you know through wetness hmm. and using that to explain and you know analogously how how people are practicing crafts or practicing you know certain you know certain modes of living Mm -hmm. um, and that they are not doing it with the land water in mind. They're doing it with with wetness and ubiquitous wetness and negotiating as we are negotiating with people. So our art is very much in this act of, 
you know, negotiating witness at this point. Yeah, it's a time and place and it's also informed of people and um, from around the world native to various different ways of living that have been much more connected to this way of thinking maybe intuitively for some time. That, that's right. And I've been, I would say all the innovation has been cut short, you know, because we have not, we have not given them room for, for their own language to, uh, to be heard. Be heard, yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, what an incredible poetic note to end on. And I feel like I would be remiss without acknowledging something recently you shared with me, an article in the works, which I hope it finds some sort of home um, to then share with a broader network, uh, a piece you wrote on um, listening for unheard voices, drawing parallels between landism and whiteism during this kind of current moment in history in America and also globally related to constructions on skin color, constructions relating to water, those parallels. So if I may, I'd like to read a line I think I shared with you that really spoke to me with hope and clarity that you wrote in that article that I hope you'll be sharing with people. Sure, sure. Right. <laughs> so related to yeah. what you were saying recently also about varying points of view listening to what's already happening on the surface and land. Um, you wrote, quote, it should then come as no surprise that people of color everywhere are rising alongside waters. They are telling us that riots, like floods, are going nowhere. They will stay as long as the line of separation is drawn. And it's a line like that that you wrote that speaks to my heart and my mind, saying that I hope, I can only hope, that more people will listen and be attuned to your form of leadership. And what I think you and Mator have been doing for some time, this sort of elegant explosiveness in ways of thinking and artistically, that, you know, it's the very reason why when I look back possibly on my deathbed, someday I'm like, yeah. I got an interview with Philip. <laughs> I got to feel back to the players. Um, but you know, Jessica, you know, I, I would like to think, I would like to think that this is what, uh, you know, what people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or, you know, some of these, some of these figures had in mind when they were, when they were talking, you know, the way in which, the way in which I questioned, I've questioned flood, uh, you know, and the way in which they questioned the riot. You know, and and I I drew on them actually to say that you know flood is the language of the unheard in water, you know, and um, that they saw the language of the unheard in the riot, or they heard the language of the unheard in the riot. I mean, and and to draw the parallel, I feel is so. I mean, today when when people are, sort of have a difficulty understanding what systemic racism is, mm -hmm. and and they are looking for systemic racism in the police, you know, it's not there, and it's not in it's it's not it's it's in everything. It's literally everything. It's like flood infrastructure. Like London. the salt, like the salt excerpt I sent you from the Upanishad. Exactly, exactly. The <laughs> salt is everywhere. It was relevant and known in 400 BC. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, and that is, and, and to, to, uh, to actually understand that, you know, to, to see that, uh, that, uh, that flood infrastructure is in the way in which we, we open our faucet every day. It's flood because it is coming from, it's coming from a controlled environment or water, you know, somewhere. You know, and and the drainage system and the water supply system is all linked to flood infrastructure. Yeah. So yeah. to keep water in its place, you yeah. know, and so riots, yeah. I mean, and so when when I'm thinking of the cry of water, you know, that nobody hears the cry of water incarcerated. Right. No one right. is hearing the the cry. Absolutely. And it's you know, so there's so much there that one can learn, I would say, from 
I would think what some of these people were saying, some of these, you know, greats yeah. in the past yeah. said, but we've never had the ability to hear, you know, what they yeah. were saying. Yeah. Right. And because particularly because of whether we're willing to point to it, see it, the systemic racism, for instance, in American education systems specifically. Now I do yeah. challenge and encourage my listeners, a community of thinkers to maybe consider like the water, start with the water as a form of practice so that even yeah. though we think we cannot consciously, visibly see it in every moment of the day, water is more broadly known as wetness, just as yeah. race is more broadly known as variants of natural skin color. Yeah. And these are things that just exist. And if we get quiet enough, though we may not see them, obviously, yeah. like water and wetness is to mist, <laughs> a different yeah. state of being, yeah. it is still there. And it's yeah. important to honor, honor ourselves, honor our world, honor all things just in the state that they are, whether we see them, obviously, or not. But you know, even even in the the you know that conference that you guys organized or the workshop that you organized at uh, at Harvard uh, last mm -hmm. year, you know, I don't know whether you saw it like that, but I saw it very much inspired by water. You know, I mean, and the the kinds of things that you were doing, challenging boundaries of the senses, you know, and I think that I mean, all of it to me was very much, you know, uh, very much driven by by what I would see, you know, as as uh, countering a land centric sort of you know dominating land dominating world <laughs> piece by piece moment by moment we'll we'll moment maybe get moment, there yeah. with with special help and leadership through your voice which um works tirelessly yeah. getting it out there thank you Della. thank you so much for this interview oh you're most welcome jessica i love talking to you you know and maybe we'll continue this conversation oh yeah? i hope so <laughs> and um thank yeah. you